Welcome to Mesmerized, where we explore the untold stories of people who walk amongst us. Your colleagues, your peers, the attractive girl that sits next to you on the train when the rest of the carriage is empty, get your hopes up that she's interested, and then before you can react to a rather forward gesture, proceeds to put headphones on and blast out tunes and any chance you had of a conversation. Everyone has a story. All you've got to do is ask them about it. I'm your host, Mez. Join me as we uncover the fascinating stories of everyday people and questions you never thought to ask. Later on the podcast, we'll be meeting with Alex, a traveler of the world, head of copywriting for a successful digital advertising agency, and a survivor of a harrowing ordeal that changed who he was forever. But for now, let's look into what question has been circulating in my mind since hearing part of Alex's story. What is septic shock? To answer that, we need to start with sepsis. Sepsis is a name given to a blood infection that is usually caused by bacteria. Let's say you had a wound in your leg and it was infected. Typically, the body would respond to the threat of infection, keeping the infection localized at the site of origin. But when the body is unable to contain the infection in the original site, it can spread into the blood, which is what is called sepsis. So when sepsis gets out of control, it becomes septic shock, which is very serious because it's a life-threatening condition that brings a dramatic drop in blood pressure, which reduces the amount of blood and oxygen that reaches the body's organs which obviously leads to death. Now, the reason blood pressure drops in the body is it's trying to fight back the infection. So it releases what's called inflammation mediators, which make your blood vessels dilate, which is medical speak for it makes them larger. It opens up the highways of your blood vessels to make the blood, the white blood vessels get there faster to fight the infection. But with more space to flow and no increase in blood, naturally that's going to result in a drop in blood pressure. So septic shock is lethal and it has a mortality rate, which medical speak again for just death rate, from 25% to 50%, depending on the severity of the case. According to the Australian Sepsis Network, as approximately 5,000 people die of sepsis in Australia each year, the burden of death from sepsis is greater than the annual national road toll, deaths on the road. And sepsis causes more deaths than breast, prostate and colorectal cancer. The report goes on to state that the incidence of severe sepsis continues to increase both in Australia and in other countries. Sepsis causes or contributes to between one-third and one-half of all deaths in hospitals in the USA. But that's enough talk about septic shock. Let's go hear Alex's story and how he was catfished for nine months. All right, Alex, welcome to Mesmerize. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys, no one of you will probably know Alex, um, except you should. He's got a green Victoria Bitter shirt on. It's his favorite shirt, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I met him when I was working at one of my previous jobs. But what's always been weird for me is Alex's story that he's going to share with us, I didn't know until I stopped and asked him. I've always known Alex to be you know, full of life, cheerful, cheeky, bit of banter, and humorous, enigmatic. But there's this whole dark story that he went through and came out on the other end. That's what we're going to be hearing about today. So listen in because it's going to be good. Uh, Alex, but let's start off with your, let's start off with where you were born, where you grew up. So where where, where was home? Home was Springwood in the Blue Mountains. Um, If no one's been to the Blue Mountains, I recommend it for a half day trip. Uh, That'll probably get you everything you need to see. (laughs) Half day. Half day trip. You see the three sisters and you've seen the Blue Mountains. Um, but yeah, I was born in Katoomba at the top of the mountains, grew up in Springwood for the first 20, 21 years of my life. Uh, and the Blue Mountains is where I called home. 
So you were telling me that um, the Blue Mountains, they kind of just end up transplanting to Sydney. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mate still here in the yeah. The the goal of the Blue Mountains is to move from the Blue Mountains to Sydney and bring the entire community with you. <laughs> you you'll go to any pub in the inner west. You'll be like, I went to school with that guy. That's my old teacher. This, I hated this person at school. If you're successful, you'll go from the Blue Mountains to Sydney and hang out with the exact same people. Oh my goodness! So you can't even leave them behind. You can't escape them. All right. Well, this whole story of yours is centered around. Uh, pre twenty and post twenty. Yes. So give us a picture of pre twenty. What were you like? Uh, it was it was an easy lifestyle. My mum loved to do the cooking and cleaning, and I loved to let her. <laughs> um, and so I had, <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was childlike. I describe it as it was it was very easy. Like I, I was going to university. Um, I was a year and a half in. What were you studying? I was studying history, bachelor oh. of arts majoring in history. So I could see pe- that people would call that a basket weaving course, which I appreciate because that. They assume I know how to weave a basket. This course <laughs> teaches you nothing. <laughs> so wouldn't would not recommend. Oh uh, no, I'd recommend. Well, I'm I'm not going to talk down on the degree too hard. I enjoyed it, but it, it didn't get me to what I wanted to do in life. But it was enjoyable. I mean, I liked. It was nothing I couldn't have read on Wikipedia, but it was still nice <laughs> to pay forty thousand dollars to hear from someone else. That's true. Now, were you tight with your mates leading up to? Did you always have a solid group of friends? Were yeah, you e- extremely tight with my high school mates. Um, so. A couple of them moved down to the city after high school ended and a couple stayed in the Blue Mountains, but we still found time to see each other all the time, so we were we were still thick as thieves. And when you were at uni, were you in Blue Mountains travelling to Sydney or living in Sydney? I was in the Blue Mountains, so I got the train the train to Sydney Uni every day. Yeah. So it was like what's that? It was like two hours to get to a lecture and then I'd come back again. Sometimes I'd only have one lecture and you'd have to go oh. be like, Oh, the lecture is sick, everyone go home and you'd be like, This is <laughs> oh, no. this is my life now. Oh no! So I commuted to uni every day, yeah. And the reception's not good. So when would you find out when you get to uni? Yeah, I would get to uni and then and then realize there's no point coming in. Or I'd have a lecture from like nine till ten, and then another a tute from like three till four. You'd have like hours in between just to do nothing. <laughs> what some lifestyle? But then things started to change a little bit when you were nineteen. So you started to get some symptoms. What, what was happening? That's right. So I was uh, twenty at the time. I just turned twenty. So it was uni holidays, and they give you far too long holidays. I think it's like three months off or something like that. Um, so it started off just you feel a bit run down. I was like, oh, I'm probably stressed from exams at uni. I'm probably pushing myself too hard. You know, <laughs> doing the basket weaving course, getting the <laughs> sore fingers. Um, so I started off with a bit of a dull headache, mm. just feel a bit tired, a bit of lethargy. But when you're 20, you just you pass it off. It's like this is I'm invincible. I'll power through this. Uh, and I was playing football, soccer at the time uh, with my brother, playing indoor soccer. And I would come on for a minute, maybe even 30 seconds, and I'd be like, I'm cooked. I've got no cardio. I'm drinking too many beers. Clearly, sub me off. So I'd go straight off and sit on the sideline. Um, and it got to the point where I just never felt good every single day. And a symptom that I had that no one really explained to me in hindsight, I felt a really, really light humming sensation in my chest, as if someone was holding a vibrating phone just above the surface 24-7. What? And it never stopped. And I was, I had no idea what it was. You do the WebMD, figure out you've got a brain tumour. Um, <laughs> and the, nothing oh. helped. And WebMD tells you you've got everything. And yeah. still, I was getting nothing. Um, so I told my mum, I said, oh, I haven't been feeling too crash hot for probably a month now. She was like, yeah, no, no dramas. We'll take you to the local GP. Uh, he had no idea. He said, you're, you know, you're a strapping, handsome young man, what his <laughs> words were. Uh, but I'll give you a blood test. We'll give you an ECG. It can't hurt. And then you'll be, you'll be right as rain to catch up with the boys later tonight. 
Um, so that day I got a, a blood test and an ECG and that was kind of the last day of normality for me. So you, what do you mean? As in you, you went home and how, walk us through from that test to what your parents heard and. Yeah. So the, the test was fine. It was like every other day I was still, I wasn't feeling too crash hot, like I said, but I was sure, you know, I'm only 20 there'll be nothing wrong with me deep down. Um, so I went home, hung out with my brothers, I was watching TV, and I remember the phone rang, it must have been, it was late at night, it was later than you'd expect a phone call to ring, and this is like a home phone. Yeah, back in the day where home phones were serious calls. Now for home phone rings, people people scream, siren starts in the distance, (laughs) but um, my mum picked up the phone, um, and I was in the bathroom at the time, and I remember she's had sort of a hurried conversation, and she called my dad over, and they had a hurried conversation, and they, they retired off to their bedroom and closed the door, and I was like, oh, that's... Wow, that's a bit. That's a bit strange. Like someone's going to get terrible news. <laughs> and went back to watching TV. Um, and in hindsight, it was, it was so brave and strong of them that they gave me one more night of normality, because the next morning, uh, my dad said, "Pack an overnight bag. We just got to duck down to the hospital." They they said, "You're not feeling too great. They'll just give you a blood transfusion. We'll, we'll come back again the next morning." So just just an overnighter. I was like, "Oh yeah, you know, fair enough." And again, this leads into how sort of young and naive I was. Didn't follow through, just went, hey, this, you know, I'm 20, you know, the world's my oyster. I mean, I don't like oysters. The world's my something I like. My world's my chicken schnitzel. <laughs> and I jumped in the car and drove down to Nepean Hospital, which is only a half hour drive from Springwood. And my dad, I remember he dropped my mum off at the front door and my mum is a bit of a tortoise in the hair type person. She's a bit of a slow mover. She zipped out the car and went straight to the hospital. Oh, so completely out of character. Yeah, completely out of character. I thought, wow, this is, you know something's going on she must really need to use the bathroom <laughs> and my dad he peeled around the corner three or four streets away and I'll never ever forget this day as long as I live he he parked the, we had a big white sort of panel van he parked the van and he said just sit tight for a minute mate and he got out his side got out the right side driver's door walked around the side my window was rolled down I remember it clear as day this beautiful breeze on my face and he put both hands on the edge of the window looked right at me and said um, the doctors say it's leukemia. And, mate, that was, my life was never the same after that. How did you emotionally react at that time? Oh, mate, I fell apart, to be honest. I just disintegrated my, it's, it feels like hyperbole, but my whole world ended. I just remember being absolutely distraught. My first words were, people die of cancer all the time. It was just from going from absolute idyllic childhood life where, Everything was easy. I got the train to uni when I felt like it. Dinner was always ready to my dad looking me in the eye and saying, the doctors say it's leukemia. And my reply was, people die of cancer all the time. Just instant reply. And yeah. yeah, I just there was, I just knew the seriousness of the situation. And then, and then you went in and you met someone that now is kind of a hero to you. Yes, that's right. So the, the hospital is a confronting place at the best of times, even more so when you just find out you have leukaemia. Um, so I remember sitting down and I had to sign some forms. I have no idea what I could have signed away, like my, my will, the rights to my movie. Who knows? I didn't even read it. I just signed it. Um, and I met Dr. Simon Fuller, who is and will always be an absolute hero of mine. He's, all doctors are actually superheroes masquerading as doctors. And this guy, is, he's the Superman, the Batman, the whatever the top superhero is. <laughs> Um, he's just, yeah, I, I can't say enough high praise about him. He, he was a straight shooter when I really needed someone to 
not to, uh, what am I looking for? Not to like tell me what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear. Yeah. He, he didn't hide it. He didn't hide the seriousness of the situation. Um, he just gave it to me straight. Um, I, I can't say enough praise about Dr. Simon Fuller. And well, you started to hang out a lot with him because your hospital became your home for how long? So that they told me a bit of a white lie. The parents, it wasn't an overnight stay. I'd only had one shirt packed. Um, so I spent 244 days in hospital, um, in, in up on whatever ward it was, Ward 3W, I believe. Um, and on the first day, wow, there's so many, so many memories flooding back going through this, but on the first day, Dr. Fuller came in and he said, 30 years ago, this was a death sentence, but we're not trying to prolong your life. We're trying to cure you. And I remember that being the first time where I was like, you know what, this is without doubt the worst moment in my life, but this guy's on my side. He seems to believe, so I'll just kind of latch onto that train and, and hope for the best. Um, and from there, he he told me that being 20, um, being young, is you're more susceptible to the treatment working, so it's better to be young than old. But at the same time, the, the type of leukaemia I had was AML, so it stands for acute myeloid leukaemia. And leukemia falls into the acute or the chronic range. So there's, I believe, two acute and two chronic and a few other types. Um, chronic you can have for years without treatment, I'm pretty sure. But acute will get you in like weeks to months. Like this comes on hard and fast and, and that's curtains for you. So the fact I'd been feeling unwell for like three weeks to a month was was um, pretty pretty insane in hindsight to look back and think all that time that I wish I'd gone to the doctor sooner and got this picked up and let's get this treatment rolling. But in terms of the treatment, he told me, you can either have three months of chemo, but the chemo we have weakens a healthy heart, so there's a chance you're going to have a heart attack down the line. But we've seen this chemo work in the past. Um, or we can put you on a trial that no one's done before. We've got room for 12 people in New South Wales to be on this trial. Uh, the chemo is twice as strong, twice as long, so you'll be having seven months of chemo minimum. But it won't affect your heart, but the trade-off is we're not sure if it'll work. So you're 20, let us know by tomorrow. Um, so I had a bit of a sleepless night trying to decide and opted to go on the trial and join the other 11 Why people. did you choose the... It was a real tough one. I mean, the, the, I guess because deep down I was optimistic it would work. In my mind, I'm going to be out of here and when I am, I want my life, when it goes back to normal, whenever that may be, I don't want to have a heart attack. I don't want to have heart problems. I want to like be able to walk up a hill and not like freak out and fall over. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll the dice put it all on black and say, give me the one that might not work, but that won't hurt my heart. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So every, I wouldn't say everyone, but large majority of the listeners won't have any understanding what chemo feels like. They may know what it is where they basically kill the cancer cells along Mm -hmm. with other cells and then make you more susceptible to cancer down the track. But what does chemo feel like? And walk us through, if you can, the process of of your stay there. Yeah, chemo is a tough one. It's kind of like... You got a weed in your garden, so you drop a nuclear bomb on it, and then wait till it resets, and then let the flowers grow back up again. Um, so chemo is, is it just kind of resets your body, kills all the cells, um, and then with any luck, the, the new cells are going to be healthy when they come back. Do you feel like hungover or in pain after a workout? What does it? What's the sensation? Yeah, it's it's really hard. It's one of those things. It's really hard to to get across. It's like. It's trying to explain, I imagine, what being pregnant's like or what being like belted in the nutsack is like. Yeah. Um, chemo is, without doubt, horrific. It's it's a real challenge physically and emotionally. So physically, imagine the worst point 
in your worst hangover you've ever had. Like that next morning you wake up, splitting headache, dry mouth, so sick. It's like that times a thousand, nonstop for five days. You cannot escape the feeling of how terrible you are. You can't eat food because you'll throw it up. And even when you can eat food, and this is something I found out and was frustrated at, your sensation of taste is destroyed. So after five or six days of chemo, I was so ready for a good feed. Um, Got the meal all ready. First bite, tasted like cardboard. Nothing. So these little things are taken away from you during chemo that lead to how tough it is mentally. That it's just, it's like lying in a bed dying for a week. That's what it's like. That'd be as accurate a way as I could play. And then you recur- And then when does taste and when does all sensations return when they hit you again? With they the- they come back slowly. So the way it worked for me, because I'd opted for seven rounds of chemo instead of three, I would have five or six days of chemo on and then between three and four weeks off until I was healthy enough to go home. And then I'd get three or four days at home and then I'd go back to hospital for another month in. So the, over that three or four weeks, your um, red blood cells, white blood cells and, and platelets start to regenerate Um, because while you're on chemo your white blood cells reset to zero which means any infection can kill you Um, your red blood cells drop to like zero so you're not getting oxygen around your body so your organs are in danger and your platelets um, are destroyed too so your blood can't clot so if you cut it'll just keep bleeding oh my goodness Mm -hmm. so that's why it's so important to donate blood you were saying absolutely if anyone can donate blood please do it takes very little time and it helps someone 20 minutes of your time is 20 years to someone else yeah and all right, now the surgery parts. So when you were telling me this, I, I, I was flabbergasted, really. Mm-hmm. So you, you end up, initially you end up a bit like Robocop or the Terminator with what's coming out of your chest. What, what was that? Yeah, so that was the first surgery. They, they really throw you in the deep end. Um, there's a few ways you can have chemo administered. You can have like a cannula in your, your wrist or your, your arm, I believe. Um, but for, I had a blood cancer, so they needed to get this chemo going all around my body. So they insert a central line into your neck that attaches to your heart. I think it's called a Hickman line. Um, so that's attached to your heart, and then the chemo will be fed through that and pumped around your entire body. Um, so that was my first surgery, and it was it was extremely harrowing because I had no idea what to expect. And they, they brought me into this operating room, and I was like, cool, they're going to knock me out. Like, I'm going to wake up, as you said, Robocop, except with zero powers. Um, <laughs> and they didn't knock me out. They gave me a local anesthetic and put a big blue sheet in front so I couldn't see what was going on and they tasked a very nice old nurse with the job of keeping me calm which she failed to do but it was a very difficult challenge for her Um, and then I could feel them pushing this plastic tube through my neck um, down inside my chest to connect it to my heart I was lying there feeling my heart beating while they were jamming this plastic tube inside my body and it was it was it was something so there's this cable hanging out of your chest and that'll be hanging out there for eight months. That's going to be there for eight and a half months. So that has like three um, little sort of receptors on the end where they can attach different fluids, saline or chemo or whatever they need to put in you. Um, and it's literally just 10 centimetres hanging from your chest, just hangs down in your body. It's part of you, to you are. They clean it, uh, I can't remember, X amount of times a day, but it's really important to clean it because if um, bacteria goes from the outside world inside your body... When you've had chemo and you have no white blood cells, you are you could be in some serious trouble. Oh no! And then that wasn't even that that so that was the start of it. Then you started having these bone marrow biopsies, mm. which it's it feels like your bones are breaking. It does. So the the trial I was on, there was twelve of us. We had to have um, fairly regular testing to track the effectiveness of the chemo we were having. 
So I'd have a bone marrow biopsy, I think it was every month or so, um, where they would give you, again, I think it was a local anesthetic, but they would give you this drug that the way they explained it is that you would feel the pain at the time, but you would forget about it afterwards. It was like a forget me not. And they, which sounds great, but you still have to go through it at the time. So I can't remember it that well now, but I have these little moments of flashbacks of the most intense pain, struggling, trying to get people away from me. The doctors told me later they had to have extra nurses hold me down because I didn't want to let them near me when it was happening. And they would give me Valium and um, I can't remember the name of the other the other relaxer, but they just stopped working. They were like, we don't know what to do. We've given you so much Valium and you're still kicking around like like you're having the worst dream of your life, which in a way I was, I suppose. So they, they feed a biopsy needle um, into your bone and take a sample out. And the feeling of that needle going into bone is... It's yet another <laughs> something that I'll never forget. How do they do? They have to physically force it, or do they have a machine that kind of goes through the bone? Or? They make a small, a really tiny incision. I remember that much. Um, I don't believe it's a machine. I think it's all like manually done. Like there's a doctor doing it. He's like putting the needle in and drawing it out again. Um, but at a certain stage, they stopped giving me biopsies. They said you don't. It's you don't take well to them. Um, we don't think it's a good idea for your physical or mental health. And we're just going to tell the trial that you refuse to, to have any more because we don't think it's fair on you, the, the way you're reacting and how stressful it is and what it's doing to your parents who have to sit there and watch you like thrashing around like a hammerhead shark on a boat um, to keep going with these. So eventually I stopped having biopsies. And that was at the same time. It was kind of mounting again to a point the treatment wasn't working. How, what was the motions around the family at that time? Cause how many months have you been in when it wasn't working for? Um, so, I, so I overheard a doctor at... I think it was only after the first round of treatment, so month one of what turned out to be eight and a half months there, not seven, um, saying that it hadn't hadn't taken yet. The the chemo they test like um, cancer cells per billion or some some metric like that, and he said there were still problems. And then I read, which was my one of my many mistakes. You should never Google your own symptoms or read up on things. That the longer treatment takes without working sort of less likely it will work in the long run. Oh, no. So it was an extremely stressful time. But in terms of how my family felt, they if they were upset, you wouldn't know it because they were absolute rocks. Oh, really? My dad stayed. He was with me that first night. I'm extremely close to my dad. My mum too. I love both my parents. But my dad stayed um, every night for the first 100, 100 days. He was there every single night because I needed him there. Um, and never once did he break down. Never saw him upset. He, he set an example that I could go... Well, he seems to be doing all right. So Dr. Fuller seems pretty confident. Uh, maybe I should have a bit of confidence too. So you'd never know that they were going through the worst time in their lives as well as me. And didn't he sell the family business or something like that to fund it or he stepped away at least? Yeah, so we had a CD shop just as CDs became obsolete. So we were on the real like cutting edge of business. Um, but my dad had a CD shop for 10 years. Um, I don't know if he sold it as a result of this or if he just stepped away, but he, he was with me every day. He, he had no like... There was no other employment taking up his time. He made sure he was with me and me exclusively. Wow. Um, yeah. But in terms of funding it, the because I was on the trial, everything was paid for, which which my family appreciated greatly. Every chemo, every operation, every little surgery, um, the government paid for. So thanks, government. Well, this you're the reason why I enjoy paying my taxes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but there's... There's a moment you're telling that you wrote down in your journal that no matter what people tell you, they could never deny that this happened. Can you mm-hmm. share it with us? Yeah, this was... Oh, it's. I get emotional just thinking about it, to be honest. This was 
about a month in, the, the chemo wasn't doing too too well at the time. And um, sorry, the I remember lying in my hospital bed and my dad was next to me and I drifted off to sleep. And the, the dream I had, so I woke up in a room exactly like the room I was in, except my dad wasn't there anymore. It was just me on my own. But instead of feeling alone or isolated or afraid, I felt wildly safe. And I felt these two arms wrap me that... I don't describe them as physical arms, but the sensation was just the same. It was like someone was holding me. And the person behind me, whoever it was, I had no desire to turn around. Nothing in me felt like I needed to know. In that moment, I felt completely, completely safe and protected. Um, And it's been 10 years since that day, and I still remember it clear as day, and it still brings tears to my eyes. I don't know if it was a religious experience or a spiritual experience, but something was with me that day that said, you know what, you're going to be okay. And it was the most safe, most protected feeling I've ever had. And I, I can't explain it. I can't explain what it was. But it, it, after that, the, the chemo started taking. Um, the next round, the leukemia cells per billion was zero. And I've had no relapse in the 10 years since. Wow. Uh, I, feel, I feel goosebumps on me as you tell me that story because there's such a profound truth to it. Wow. And, um, but that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean that you didn't have a few uh, trials still ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Even though the chemo was taking, you ended up looking like Hannibal Lecter, you were saying. Yeah, so the, I had, I consider three sort of major bumps in the experience that really stand out. The first one, I'd had an infection for days or weeks, however long it was, and the doctors could not figure out where it was coming from. But my temperature was constantly spiked. They were giving me all the antibiotics they could to try and get rid of it. Nothing was working. And their fear was that I had an infection in my heart, which is really dangerous. And they said, the only way we can figure this out is if we put a camera down your throat and look from the inside, because we can't look from the outside properly. So I was like, oh, cool, like you'll you knock me out for that. And they were like, well, yes and no. Again, you won't remember too much of it, but at the time, it's, it's going to be pretty horrific. And I remember being wheeled down to this little operating room, and this nurse was so nice. All the nurses were so nice while I was this freaking out and complaining and trying to figure out how to get through it all. They, they put this brown sort of circle in my mouth and said, bite down on this as hard as you can. And I bit down on it and it didn't, it didn't budge. And I was like, oh, what now? And like, that's perfect. This is to make sure you don't snap this camera off while it's in your mouth. So they taped this um, sort of mouth guard to my mouth so I couldn't get rid of it. And they had tape all around the corner to hold it there. And then they gave me a sort of calming drug. Um, but I was still, I can still remember it. So I don't know if they didn't give me enough. Uh, and they fed this camera down my throat while I was trying to sort of bite it instinctively because you don't want things to go down your throat where you can't breathe. Um, they fed it all the way down and, and took an x-ray from inside my heart, which turned out to be negative. There was nothing wrong with my heart, so wasted experience apart from that sweet camera in the mouth. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That, oh, it's, every natural reaction would be to thrash out of that while someone's shoving a camera down your throat, no matter how nice the, the people were. That, yeah. And then... Then your dad came up big in another incident. Yeah, dad, oh, he's the man. He was there for me. So we had the, the main hospital bed, for anyone who's been in hospital, sucks. These beds aren't comfortable. They're, I don't know why they built them like that. I guess it's a, for some medical reason. But they have this little visitor's cot next to the bed, which I find extremely comfortable. So I would always sleep in the visitor's cot and my dad would sleep in the bed, which somewhat sadly, the docs, new nurses and doctors would come in and start asking him questions because they would naturally assume... A, you know, a 60-year-old man, he's the one here with leukemia. This must be Alex Porter, and he'd have to be like, that's actually 
my son is 20. He's in the, he's in the visitor's mm-hmm. cot. He's, he's the one with leukemia. You need to ask him the question, uh, which is always a bit of a challenge. But I was sleeping comfortably in the, in the visitor's cot one night. And I, I remember sitting bolt upright just at, it must have been, I think it was 1 or 2 a.m., completely upright. I would turn to my dad, who he's a light sleeper, so he woke up, and I said, Dad, something's not right. I need help. And that was the only words I managed to say. I don't know how my brain knew that. It was some sort of extinct, instinctive thing. Um, and I lay back on the bed and, and started to drift away. Where I was drifting, I'm not sure, but it was not a good place. And I remember my dad trying to say something and just not understanding the words. Like he no longer spoke English or he was an alien who just said something to me that I could never understand. And he called for a nurse and the nurse came in and saw me and she hit this wall on the, uh, a button on the wall, so excuse me, um, which is a, a MET call, which stands for Medical Emergency Team Call, which is just about the most serious alarm you can hit in a hospital. Um, it was actually developed in Australia, I think, at Liverpool Hospital, so shout out to Liverpool Hospital. Um, and when you hit the, the MET call, it's because a patient's vital signs are falling into a category where the likely outcome is death. So um, she hit the alarm, lights go off, noises go off, doctors and nurses pour into the room, they pull the, the cot from where it is, detach it from the wall into the middle of the room, um, and I remember the movement around me. It, it's, it's kind of like the way movies portray it, except I see it in my head. I remember people around me moving, but everything was in slow-mo, and no one's voice made sense, and it was like a, when cameras start to fade into the middle and it's just darkness, so darkness started on the outside and started fading in, so people were disappearing, no one's voice made sense. I remember my dad standing in the corner, um, and it, it turns out I, I'd gone into septic shock. So my, my organs were shutting down, um, and I was dying. And I remember a doctor, I, I don't know which doctor, I'd love to find out to thank him. He, he came in with this big adrenaline needle and slammed it into my thigh and pushed it in, and they put um, saline in my arm, started pumping me full of fluids, and the adrenaline made me sit bolt upright, like just like I did at the start, only I wasn't fading away, I was coming back. And I remember just taking this one huge deep breath, like I'd just been born again, and I was back from the dead. Ugh, I'm almost tearing up. These stories are incredible. Of, um, of it's as if it's like you were not meant to die. You just kept coming back. I'm invincible. I'm not Wolverine. Uh, you know? um, and, but you still carry... Outside the mental memory, the mental scarring, you still carry physical differences in your body right now. And you, you, for example, you can't, you may not be able to be a father. Yeah, that's right. So early on in the, in the treatment, a doctor, he, he said, oh, you know, chemo's not great for your sperm count. You should consider um, freezing some sperm. Is freezing the right term? Doing whatever was sperm. Yeah, yeah, you freeze it. Putting it somewhere. And I was like, oh, I'll definitely think about that. And then I just didn't think about it because I had a lot going on. And it got to the end of the treatment and I hadn't, I hadn't frozen any sperm. Um, so I still to this day I haven't checked to see if I can have kids or not. It's something I would like to follow up on, but potentially um, that experience might have made me not able to be a father. So, Well, based on the somewhat divine interventions in your life so far, uh, hopefully you can still come up strong and raise some kids that you know, are decent at soccer like you are. Um, Thank you, I appreciate that. And, but... Soccer has been affected by your, your was it your right hip? Or yeah, your right my right hip. hip. So after I went into septic shock, they still didn't know what the infection was in my body. So they, after many, many tests, my right leg started hurting. They hadn't looked at my right leg yet, but it was, it was 
there was terrible, terrible pain. I couldn't walk anymore. I just had to sit down and be rolled around in a fun little wheelchair. And I remember one of my doctors came in and he said, based on your charts and the way you're describing it, it sounds like you've broken your leg in your sleep. And I said, is that possible? And he said, no. So I was like, well, that's great. We're back at square one. Can we figure out what this is? He said, all right, let's figure it out. And the pain got worse and worse. It was worse than chemo. It was worse than when I went into septic shock and my chest felt like I was, it was going to explode. It's the only time I've ever felt a 10 out of 10 pain. I could not bear it. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't move. This pain in my right leg got worse and worse. And it turned out after five or six days of searching, so five or six days of getting no sleep, no movement, I couldn't do anything, that I had an in, uh, infection that should only be on the outside of your skin had got inside my body, possibly through my Hickman line, and it had created a little stronghold, as the doctors explained it, in my the sort of large muscle that goes from your hip to your butt. So they'd banded together there, and the antibiotics had sort of strengthened their resolve, and they were like this little community that wouldn't let anything in. So it was this tight little like um, sort of sack of infection, I guess, to put it in a very sexy way, um, that no one could get rid of. So the doctor said, all right, at least we know where it is now. We'll give you a quick little surgery to get rid of it. But having said that, you've just had chemo and your white blood cells are at zero. So we can't do surgery for 10 days. You might get infected, you might bleed out. So we'll come back in 10 days. So I was left with a 10 out of 10 pain for 10 days, which makes it 100 out of 100 pain. Um, and it was... It was unbearable. I cannot put into words how bad it was. I couldn't sleep. I maybe got an hour of sleep a night, which made me lose my mind. I couldn't eat. I couldn't move. I couldn't go from my bed to the bathroom. The pain was off the charts. None of their painkillers were strong enough. And eventually, when my body got strong enough to do surgery, um, they removed it, but they didn't tell me that there'd be long-term effects of that either. So years later, I'd been having terrible back and neck pains, and I went to the physio. He said, has anyone... He didn't know about my cancer experience. And he said, has anyone told you you're missing muscle from the right-hand side of your body? He must have felt like he was um, breaking the, <laughs> the bad news to me. And I said, yeah, I had surgery when I was in hospital for leukemia. And he said, I understand why they didn't tell you, but your hips are permanently, very slightly, but permanently over-rotated. So you're always slightly forward where a natural person should stand. And as a result, you're probably going to have lower back pain for the rest of your life. So I had to go through a bunch of... Um, physio and training and stretching to try and minimize the pain it's in a pretty good place at the moment but um, if ever I don't want to go to a social event I'll just say mate I've got back pain I couldn't go out tonight so there you go you seem to always make make a way out of it that's that's what's so astounding about you see the physio didn't know I didn't know and that's what I've always I've always been blown away by you yeah I mean your ability to do that I appreciate that mate the way I see it everyone everyone has a hill to run up or a battle to fight or whatever um, stressful metaphor you want to use. Um, so I'm no different. So you can't complain about these things, you know. And then you, and so that, that was it. You, you'd finished the 244 days. It was a harrowing ordeal mm-hmm. and you didn't want to go home. Yeah, it sounds weird, but that's, you've hit the nail on the head. It, it got to day 243 and I was keeping a, a journal every day. So I had like fun memories, sad memories. I wanted to keep track of everything. You never know. Um, and I got to day 243 and I thought, I'm almost at day 250. This is going to be some milestone. And I woke up on day 244 and Dr. Fuller came in, Dr. Simon Fuller, plus his little cotton socks, whatever socks he wears, and said, oh, mate, you're, that's it. You've done eight and a half months. You've done all the chemo. You're now strong enough to go home. You're free. Congratulations. Uh, for now, you've beaten cancer, but we'll be in touch every three months. And I remember saying, no, no, I've, I'm almost at day 250. 
And he said, no, like, you're, you're done. You, you, this is it. You go home. And to me, I already was home. I'd been there that long that I wasn't going home. I was leaving my home. It felt like I was leaving everything. I knew this was my world. I knew where to go from my ward to wherever I needed to be. I knew all the nurses. I knew a bunch of the patients. This, I was home and they were, they were kicking me out, which shows just what a, an insane experience it is for the mind that after 244 days, eight and a half months, um, I felt like I was home. And and there's there's one there's two things I want to explore. But didn't you get catfished at hospital? I don't even know how that's possible. Uh, <laughs> ten out of ten pain. You're getting catfished. I, I did get catfished actually, and it's something I would love to solve this mystery. So if anyone listens to this and can help me solve this mystery, please do. But my dad bought me a laptop on my second day in hospital, um, which is a very thoughtful gift. He, this was back in 2008, so there was no Netflix. There wasn't as much to do, which seems insane to say, but even 10 years ago, there was less to do. So he bought me a laptop, and I would watch movies, and I would, I would go online and, and go on YouTube and stream live sport, legally, of course. And I went in um, some chat room, and I was like, oh, you know, there's got to be someone to talk to. I started talking to people, and everyone was obviously quite an insane person because that's the type of people the chat rooms um, seem to attract. And there was a woman with this screen named Sailor Tomasik. Sailor Tomasik, which seemed like a very interesting name. She told me she was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Her dad was a prominent sports lawyer. She was a millionaire. And her ex-boyfriend was the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Ben Roethlisberger. Which you can understand sounds insane. But I was 20. I thought I was dying. I finally had someone to talk to. And I said, you know what? This, this seems legit. I'm not going to peel back the layers of this onion. And I went straight in. We spoke for almost the entire duration of my hospital experience. She was someone I would talk to, send emails, go back and forward. We even spoke on the phone hundreds of times. Um, But never, never videos. Never saw what this person looked like. She would send photos and stuff and say, this is who I am. This is, And they were candid photos. They weren't like Shutterstock image of like a woman holding cat. They were like real photos of real people at a bar or at a restaurant or at a Steelers game. So I thought this person must be who they say they are. And after nine months, I, so I left hospital after eight and a half, and after nine months of talking to her, I was back in the real world, and I was doing other things with my time, and her stories became more and more elaborate. She said that she flipped her car and was in hospital, and I needed to talk to her. She said that her dad died of a stroke, and then she said that she got breast cancer after all that. And for me, that was, that was, that was too much. After everything I'd been through, after the cancer ordeal I'd had for someone who I knew by now was lying to say that they had breast cancer and that's why I needed to be there for them was just too much. So I, I never found out who this person was. I know for a fact, I say I know for a fact, I could be proven wrong and I would love to be, I'd love to meet this person if they were really who they say they were. But I searched the name online and did a bit of internet sleuthing, didn't exist. Their, her dad's uh, law firm didn't exist. The people she talked about didn't exist. The address she um, claimed she lived at didn't exist. Nothing. There was no record of this person anywhere. So I sent the same email on the same day every year for seven years saying, I know you're not who you say you are and I don't want to out you. This isn't to try and get you in trouble. I don't want to you know, make a scene or, or do anything. I want to thank whoever you really were for what you did for me because I could never repay it and I don't know how I would have got through it without you. I would love to, to meet you, just a photo of the real you, jump on video I just want to say thank you to whoever you really are and after seven years of sending that and getting no reply 
just this year gone, the email returned to sender and said this account's no longer active. So my one avenue of, of contacting this person closed um, and I don't think I'll ever find out who they were. I, wow. think that, I think that's it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That, what the heck? But uh, So all this happened in 244 days in the hospital and so now, now you were no longer terminally ill. Mm-hmm. But when you got home, you had forgotten to live. And you forgot. And I really want to explore the story that, and the idea that you're telling me that something did die in the hospital. And that was old Alex. So yeah. take it away. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's so difficult to put into words. It really is. But when... I can't speak for other people. When I went through an experience like that, the person that came out the other side wasn't just different, but to me, the old Alex had died in hospital. And I mean, I guess technically in some ways I, I might have at times, but the old Alex died and new Alex was born on the other side. And I behaved differently. I spoke differently. My taste in food was different. My attitudes were different. It was like being a completely different person. So not only was I dealing with this terrible mental trauma of what I'd been through and this horrific survivor's guilt which is so hard to process and understand but I was also trying to figure out who am I in this new world how do I respond to things how do I how do I handle someone when they want to talk to me about my cancer experience am I the type of person that's going to get upset or angry or frustrated or calm Um, so it was a real challenge trying to move through that mental barrier what helped you um, moving beyond that, nothing for about a year. I was a train wreck of a person to be around, and I, this is a retroactive retroactive apology to my friends and family. Um, it was a real challenge. It was only when I went to New Zealand in 2010 with my one of my best mates, Matt. Shout out to Matt. Um, that I realised this is what happiness feels like again. I was either upset or neutral, which is almost a worse place to be to have no feelings at all um, for the previous year. And then I went to New Zealand, and it was like this is what life feels like. This is what it's like to experience things and enjoy things and be happy and laugh again. So it was only travel that really clicked my mind and body back into, all right, this is life. This is what you need to be doing. And I've been traveling ever since trying to hold on to that feeling. So it allowed you to disassociate with old Alex and go, okay, new new structure, new me. I don't have anything to fall back on. I can just learn and appreciate who I am now. Yeah, spot on. It was, the, it was a chance to literally make a break like, from the Alex that was. It was because even when I was in Australia, still living in Springwood for the next year or so, it's only a hop, skip and a jump down to Nepean Hospital where I was staying. So there was always a reminder of who I was and, and what I'd been through. But to be overseas and be away from that, it was this concrete break, this definitive gap. Um, and I think I think the distance is what worked at first, just being so far away. But then it became what these distances represented, what I was achieving while I was overseas that made me realise what it means to be alive again. And listeners need to understand that when most people uh, finish chemotherapy, there's this there's this weight and fear of relapse and, and a sadness about it. But that wasn't your sadness. Your sadness was about grieving the old Alex, and that's where travel came in. So how long did it take you to become this beautiful man in front of me? Stop it, you charmer. <laughs> um, it's been a really long process. It's it's been It's coming up on 10 years since I... Uh, was cancer-free. I believe I've gone past the 10-year mark since I found out I had cancer. So I'm still waiting for that really nice cancerversary, as I put it, um, to tick past. Um, but it's been a really slow process. It's been I've had a lot of help from, from family and friends and loved ones and strangers and therapists and all sorts of wonderful people. 
but it's taken at least eight years to get to a good place and the last two years to get to a great place. What did it teach you, that 244 days? Um, well, it taught, me, it taught me so much. It taught me how strong I am. It taught me how strong other people are. It taught me that doctors and nurses are nowhere near celebrated enough. They should get pay rises. They should get holidays. They should get jet skis. They should get whatever they want. Uh, but the, the main message I took out of it, and this is something my dad said to me on day one in hospital. It was earlier I said I'd never seen him get upset. I, t- I take that back slightly. He, he got upset once on that one day. It was the only time i seen him with tears in his eyes, and he still held it together. And I was lying on this cold, hard slab of a hospital bed. It could have been a prison bed. It felt like a prison bed in many ways. And he said to me, Alex, you just have to endure. Whatever happens on the other side, I promise it'll get better. Just endure until then. And I really took those words to heart that no matter what you're going through, there is something on the other side. It might take a while to get there. It might take years to get there. And in my case, it did. But I promise you, when you endure, beautiful things happen. Yeah, what a lesson. Um, and just to finish up with a, with a final story, there was a person you met, you're doing something with the Sony Foundation that really tied it all and culminated the end of your journey of, of becoming the new Alex. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the, it took me three or four years. If someone even mentioned the word leukemia, I would lose my mind. I'd be, you know what I've been through? How dare you? Like, you shouldn't use that word around me. Like, terrible thought policing. Never a good way to live your life. Um, and then years after that, it became, I don't want to be called a survivor. That Don't pigeonhole me, don't label me, I'm more than that. And I had to work through that mental barrier. And it was only when I um, reached out to the Sony Foundation, which is uh, the sort of charity arm of, of Sony Music, shout out to the Sony Foundation, that they said, we've got this event called Wharf Award. We, we raise money for, we're trying to build youth cancer centres. Because too many, well, a lot of, of young people, you either get put in the, the youth cancer end of things or the, the adult ward which makes sense there's nothing in between so I was 20 so I was an adult obviously um, but I never saw one young person during my treatment it was always old Joe is 64 like old Joe I'm not very good at coming up with names <laughs> Betty or Joe number 2 yeah. <laughs> uh, was 74 it was always old people no one young so what the Sony Foundation wants to do is build these youth cancer centres where young adolescents can go and get their treatment and still go through it all but go through it with other people like them so I went down to help out with one of their fundraisers. And this was a couple of years ago, thinking I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the rock star here. I had acute myeloid leukemia. I'm still here ten years later. People are gonna to want to hear this story. Very self-centered, I'll admit. And I got down there and I met this this wonderful bloke, um, and he had he had scarring on his face. And I said to him, Oh, do you mind? You know, we're all survivors was here. Was it bad scarring? Or? It, it was terrible scarring. It was it looked like he he'd been through some sort of house fire. But he had this massive smile on his face. He was the nicest bloke you've ever seen. And I said, oh, I'd love to know what, what you've been through. I'd love to hear about your story. And he said, I had acute myeloid leukemia. And I said, I, that's, wow, I had the same thing. I had no idea. Do you mind if I ask how you, how you got your scarring? And he said, my chemo didn't take. So I had a bone marrow biopsy, and that didn't take. So I had a second bone marrow biopsy, and my body rejected it. And this is what's happened to my skin. This is what's happened to my body. Um, it's sort of rejected from the inside out. He has a, a lung condition. So the vessels bursted on his face? or Yeah, I'm not really sure what it was, but he, the way he explained it was that the, the bone marrow biopsy rejecting and not taking just caused his body to go haywire. And he, he has ended up with, with some pretty challenging health concerns as a result of his AML, whereas I went through my AML journey. And even though I felt like a victim for the last 10 years, really 
on day 244 when I stepped out the door, I was free again. It just took me 10 years to figure it out. Whereas someone like that who's still dealing with physical challenges, that's that's the type of, of cancer, not survivor, but thriver that, that should be celebrated. That That's the type of story people should hear. So whatever I can do to, to help anyone who's going through any cancer experience say, you know what, all I have to do is endure and come out the other side, I'm, I'm more than happy to do it. So the, um, the War for Ward Foundation was, it was an eye-opener for sure. I just, first time in my life that I'm usually speechless, Alex, hearing these stories, I, I can't get across to the listeners. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of if you're working with someone and you didn't know that they were in the special ops and they had this entire backstory because Alex is so caring, he's inquisitive, he's very intelligent and he, and he never comes into a conversation with a heavy opinion, which would be, which he should have from all the life experience he's had. So it's incredible to know you, Alex, and I hope, I hope you know that's true. You're one of the special people that I'm so blessed to have on my podcast. So thank you for coming on. Thank you, mate. Thank you so much for having me. And if, if anyone listens to this and is feeling like they can't get through something, whether it's a health thing or not, and especially if you know someone who has cancer and is, is feeling a little bit um, down in the dumps, a little bit blue, just remind them, just endure. I promise you on the other side, magic happens. There you go, guys. All right, catch us on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to Mesmerize. Make sure to subscribe to keep up to date with every new podcast. Remember, everyone's got a story. You just have to ask them about it.